coronavirus variant B117, the coronavirus variant originating in the UK that is up to 50% more transmissible, has hit the US. Meanwhile, as of January 2nd, only 4.2 million doses of COVID-19 vaccine have been administered, far fewer than the 20 million planned by the end of the year. And the U.S. is experiencing nearly 3,000 COVID-19 deaths a day on average, with the consequences of holiday travel yet to hit us. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El Sayed. 2020 may be over, but COVID-19 is definitely not. There's a difference between a vaccine and a vaccination. We have not just one, but two safe and effective vaccines with more on their way. But we have far fewer vaccinations than we'd like. That's because, as I've said before, vaccinations are more than just a safe and effective vaccine. To be sure, the scientific achievement in going from identifying a new virus that has never before been observed in humans to a safe and effective vaccine in less than a year is nothing short of a scientific marvel. And we'll talk to Dr. Kazmikia Corbett, one of the NIH scientists who made that possible later in the show. But the work doesn't stop there, as we're painfully discovering now. To turn that vaccine into vaccinations, we also need to clear the logistical hurdle of getting that vaccine to the people who need it, and the communications and trust hurdle of making sure people have the information and trust they need to decide to take it. Let's focus on the logistics piece right now. Operation Warp Speed spent over $10 billion to fund the research and development we needed to generate the vaccine. The military is leading the effort to deliver vaccines to each state, and that's where the problem gets a lot worse. Only about $240 million, a fraction of a fraction of the development budget, was spent to support states to roll out vaccines. State health departments have already been struggling under the pressure of cleaning up the mess that the Trump administration left them over the past year. They've been overworked, under-resourced, and understaffed ever since. But that's not even when the problem started. They faced a 45% reduction in funds over the past 15 years. A few weeks back, we spoke with Mike Frazier, who leads the Association for State and Territorial Health Organizations, about the challenges facing state health departments. Here's what he had to say about the challenge of deploying vaccines. We just do not have a 21st century public health infrastructure. Public health doesn't have ways to report data efficiently. We still have fax machines. One of our health officials likes to joke his state's probably keeping the entire fax industry alive. Thankfully, there's about $8 billion earmarked for vaccine distribution in the COVID relief package that passed over the holidays. Though the money's good, it's way later than it was needed. And then there's the third part, public trust in the vaccine. People have to want to take it. I spent an inordinate amount of my time this holiday talking about this vaccine with friends and family who are concerned about it. How'd they come up with it so fast? Shouldn't I wait a bit to make sure it's safe? Is it going to protect me from this new, more infectious COVID strain? How do I know they're not using me as some sort of guinea pig? You know, the government has a history of that sort of thing. These are reasonable questions. After all, the basis of science is skepticism. And that last question, about the exploitation of black and brown people by the biomedical establishment, is entirely fair. But if skepticism generates the key questions in science, data generates their answers. And we've got to get those answers out further, faster, and more completely than we have been. And that means making sure that the people who created this vaccine have the platform to answer them. We'll talk to one of those people. Dr. Kazmikia Corbett was a lead vaccine researcher on the team that eventually created the Moderna vaccine. She's a scientific rock star. She's also a young black woman, and she's been instrumental in inspiring trust in the vaccine among many who haven't seen themselves reflected in the scientific community or process. We'll talk about her experiences in science, the vaccine, and what it'll take to address the barriers that keep too many brilliant black scientists out of the lab. After the break. 
My guest today, and we're really honored to welcome Dr. Kizmikia Corbett. She is the scientific lead of the coronavirus vaccine team and research fellow at the NIH Vaccine Research Center. Dr. Corbett, thank you so much for making the time to join us and talk to us about the vaccine research process and uh, your passion for science. Thank you so much for inviting me and for taking the time on your holiday to get these podcasts out to people. Well, you know, this has been quite a year and I know you joined me when we both say that the work has to keep going because uh, we hope that we never have to have a year like this uh, again. You know, your work has been so critical to bringing this pandemic to the beginning of the end and the deployment of these vaccines. I want to step back and just ask you about your love for science. How did you and when did you fall in love with science and know that you wanted to make a career out of science? I like to say that I fell in love with science when I was 16 years old. You know, that's been my standard answer every time someone asks me. But the one thing about this pandemic is that it's allowed me to reflect a lot on the work that I've done and for better or worse, <laughs> when I started to fall in love with science. And I think actually it might've been a little bit earlier than that. So in elementary school, even I was really into science fairs and although my projects were not coronavirus vaccine development then, I just really liked asking and answering questions about how the world turns, essentially. Mm. And so I joined a lab when I was 16. And ever since then, I've been a scientist, at least in my mind. Well, we're grateful for it. You know, the, the, the point that you made about asking and answering questions is a really important one, because I think for a lot of folks who don't do science day to day, the understanding of science that a lot of folks have is that it's something you read out of textbooks, that, you know, science is just something that's there that we know, kind of like the Bible. It just handed down to us. But people don't appreciate that science is just a process. It's a way that we ask and answer questions. And you've decided to go into the science of vaccine development, which, you know, before this pandemic was something that, you know, a lot of folks sort of felt like, well, you know, the infectious disease era is over. And obviously that's not true. But how did you choose a career in, in vaccine development? I think vaccine development chose me. The way that my interest in basic science and virology and immunology merged together with my understanding of sociology. In undergrad, I was a sociology double major. And I think that really helped me to get a worldview on just kind of health disparities and other things that I felt that vaccines really could play an intricate part in helping to solve. I combined my interest in sociology with my interest in virology and vaccine development seemed like the thing that would be more, most translatable with those two combined interests. Mm. And I was lucky enough in undergrad to work at the Vaccine Research Center, which is where I work now, as an intern. And I worked on a completely different virus and a completely different project. But I got to really see how science from pipetting every day at the bench can really go into the clinic and make some, some real impact on human beings. And I wanted to utilize my career in that way, in this kind of translational space between the bench to the bedside. Mm. I, I love how you put that, the recognition of the way that science is not sterile. It exists in a living world with all the complexities that exist in the world. And the, the beautiful thing about science is that it actually is a, a very rational thing. It's more rational and predictable than, than often people are. And 
And the thing about it is that, you know, it is the sociology of the way that we interact with each other that often creates so many of the pathologies that we have to take on. And, you know, when it comes to the relationship between science and society, that hasn't always been as rational and as compassionate as we would want. So many of the same forces in terms of racism and marginalization have shaped the way that the biomedical establishment interacts with people of color in our country. And there is an awful history of that same scientific establishment exploiting black people. How do you think about the consequences of that today? And what do we need to do to take that on, particularly when we think about the importance of deploying a vaccine, particularly in black and brown communities who have been hit so hard by COVID-19? You know, the consequences of that today are becoming, I think, on a daily basis, more and more stark. Mm. I think that, number one, one of the good things, depending on how you look at it, but from my perspective, I, I actually am happy to see people starting to really shed light on their experiences and to really see some level of wide visibility of what I consider to be mistrust of or distrust of medical establishment. Because what that does is it provides a space where accountability must then come from it, right? So now really we as scientists on this side of things, doctors, et cetera, we have no choice but to really show up for people in these moments or we really lose critical momentum, especially as, for example, the vaccine development process is being very public and highlighted, et cetera. It's really all eyes on us around how we can become more trustworthy. And, you know, although that onus sits in some part on my shoulders, I'm actually happy to see that because what it does is it really eliminates the two bubbles where there are people on one side of things and then there is the medical institution or establishments on the other side of things. And as those bubbles are popped and as people start to trust a little bit more and we start to be a little bit more trustworthy, there becomes this kind of bi-directional accountability that I'm very, very happy to see. So I think that, you know, the first step is that people are doing exactly what any human would do as you're watching a vaccine that is maybe going to go into your arm, being developed in front of your eyes. They're asking questions. And then from our side of things, we're trying to answer those questions in the best way possible with more transparency and et cetera. And so it, it actually is turning out to be for the better, I think, of both sides mm. in this instance. I really appreciate the way that you put that, which is to say that we need to address the fact that for too long, the lack of access to the inside of the biomedical establishment as a function of so many means of systemic racism blocking black and brown people from being a part of the process has meant that you know there was one side, there was the bench side, and then there was the patient side, and that was that. But being able to break those, to pop those, or to even merge those bubbles is so critical. And on that no, I mean, there are a lot of people who trust this vaccine because you were a part of creating it. What does that mean to you as a, as a scientist and as a Black woman in America right now uh, in this particular moment? Well, you know, I, 
I did a thing actually over the holidays where I went back and I like re-listened to all of my podcasts and interviews and I tried to make sure that the words that I've been saying from the beginning remain true. And that's true because Mm -hmm. I wanted to be able to say, you know, people are trusting more than just my face and that the words that come out of my mouth have remained true, whether it be about data or otherwise. So it means a lot to me, number one, to be able to utilize my knowledge in this way, to respond in this way that is only for the betterment of everyone, but particularly for communities that I hold dear to my heart. And also to be trusted in that way, right? Because at this point, I think a vaccine is going to be a large, if not sole, at least immediate reason why we are going to be able to get out of this pandemic slump. And to be able to say, you know, I had my hands in this process from the design all the way through to phase one clinical trials and to be able to say, look, I trust it. And you should too, with some level of Mm -hmm. clarity, not just I've seen the data, but I opened the first vials (laughs) kind of thing. And and I, I think that that matters to people and it for sure matters to me. But I think beyond me, what it highlights is that, unfortunately, there are groups of people who have never seen their mirror image in this kind of position and who have never had science communicated to them in language that they can dissect and that they can understand. And maybe have not in so many ways had anyone to say, well, you know what, listen, I hear you and I want you to be able to trust me and I want you to be able to trust this. And for me, while I'm happy to stand in that position, there is obviously some level of disappointment in in the system for which it comes, right? Because it's 2020 Mm. and it shouldn't be that way. On that front, both you and I have had extensive scientific training. And one of the things that you come to appreciate is that the further and further you go in your scientific training, the fewer and fewer people who represent the diversity of our country. And that's largely because we just haven't done a good job creating a pipeline for black and brown scientists in this country. Reflect on your own experience and you know the experience that, that you're speaking to, which is that it shouldn't be the case that there are so few folks who represent so many uh, Americans in our country in those spaces, making decisions and moving the science forward. How do we build out a pipeline that supports and promotes black and brown scientists in this country? Redefine the pipeline. Mm. I think that part of the reason why there is a leaky pipeline is because we have defined a pipeline based on the standards of people who don't look like us. Mm. And what is considered to be leaky to some might really be fulfillment for others, right? Mm. I just think that that is the first thing that we have to do is we really have to redefine the pipeline. I mean, I am continuing to live out out my 16-year-old ambitions of being a principal investigator at a tier one research institute, having my own lab and turning out novel things, maybe winning a Nobel Prize and like all of these things that I said I was going to do when I was 16. 
But that looks different than Mm. what a lot of people who look like me consider to be success in the sciences. And so redefining the pipeline will certainly help. And the other thing is that there is a level of grit that is oftentimes synonymous with a scientific career trajectory that is not always sustainable, I don't think. Certainly for people who have priorities that look differently than, you know, your standard person, I think that we just have to really redefine what science looks like and what that means for the quote-unquote pipeline. Mm. I think it's, uh, it's, it's really, really well said. One thing that I'm really passionate about and I really try to do on this podcast, I've really appreciated the way that you've brought to it is, is to bring the, the joy and the excitement of science back to science communication. Because I think you're right, that grit that it takes to get through is unsustainable. And there are so many reasons why there are alternative challenges, particularly in communities and in families where there are resource constraints and one can't spend you know five, six, seven years in grad school and, and be able to, to support the other folks who rely on them. But part of it is also is that I think that for a lot of folks, they don't see science as a way forward for them because we haven't made it exciting and we haven't demonstrated the joy and the, the wonder of incredibly well done science to save the world, right? I mean, and that's the thing is that like, you're about as close as it gets to a real life superhero. And that's an amazing thing. And I think people need to see that and they need to see themselves in that. And I think that in, in a lot of ways is sort of what supplies part of that grit. The other part of it is also is just, we got to take down barriers, right? I mean, there are just too many barriers to folks when it comes to all of the different obstacles that people got to jump through to make it through in science. Yeah, I'm also still encountering those barriers and I am, <laughs> you know, I, I, I had a pretty good year <laughs> from a science perspective. And so yeah. it's not just making it look fun either. Because anyone who like loves their job, whether it be, I mean, my principal investigator, Dr. Graham, he loves what he does. He eats and sleeps and breathes data and is so happy to discuss it. And, but that doesn't necessarily translate all the time from our day-to-day life to the normal person. And so many people actually who just don't even know what it even means to do science on a day-to-day basis and and how fun that could be. Sure, there are going to be times where it's not fun. And what's happening right now with these vaccine efforts is for sure a once-in-a-lifetime experience, right? After this is done, I'm probably going to go off and have my own lab and do normal things. I probably will move a couple other vaccines into phase one, maybe phase two clinical trial. But for the most part, the glory of science is in just the little things that happen on a day-to-day basis. And that's really hard to translate in a very big way. Mm. It's not like Wall Street where you can spend a day trading and make billions of dollars, right? (laughs) Or I don't know, um, sports where you you have one game and it you can see 50 points on, on the scoreboard and there's glory in these kind of huge ways often it's not the same way in science and so I, I don't really necessarily know how to translate that just yet 
but I do know that my face does help. <laughs> um, yeah. I've, I've gotten a lot of messages from students who are just like, oh my God, I didn't even know that scientists look this cool or, you know, wear high heels or whatever. <laughs> and I'm like, yep, mm-hmm. we do. <laughs> so it's, it's really just about being visible and, and being true to yourself, whoever you are. Yeah, I love that. I I used to remember when I when I was uh, actively working in research, there's that moment that you knew something that nobody else did that was critical to changing something in the world, right? It's like you were sitting there listening to the world's secrets and like the world was letting you in on them. It's an amazing thing. It's a, it's a really unique feeling. Uh, and I'm really grateful that, that you're out there um, showing that to folks. I want to move a little bit to the vaccine itself. Your ability to move this vaccine out within less than a year of knowing that this virus even existed was due to a unique technology that we'd sort of spent a long time working out well before coronavirus was a thing um, that allowed you to leverage its genetic code to produce a vaccine. Can you explain to us what that technology is and, and how you were able to use it to generate a vaccine so fast? Messenger RNA technology is technology that many scientists have been working on for upwards of 15 years. And Moderna in particular has been honing with their expertise over the last several years. And so it is really cool in that you basically can use a message in the code of a protein and send it to a cell in the body and tell the cell to do whatever it is or to express whatever it is that you want to express. And so in the case of vaccines, like what's happening right now, We're telling cells to express a particular protein from coronavirus, not the whole virus, just one protein. And that protein, which is a spike protein, is the protein that is really good at generating an immune response that can help the body to block coronavirus infection later. And so this technology is really cool because it allows you to use the body to skip a really critical step that most of the time vaccine development has taken, which is either making the whole virus in a laboratory and activating it or making it less active in the laboratory or making the protein in the laboratory and purifying it and then giving that protein to a person. So messenger RNA just allows you to make a message and give that message to the cell and have the cell be the vaccine factory, so to speak. Mm. I remember reading about mRNA and the potential for using it for new vaccines back when I was med school and being, you know, particularly impressed by by this this new technology and the science that created it. Obviously, when COVID-19 hit, I had an inkling that this was going to be the direction that vaccine development would go just because it allows you to work far faster the minute that you've decoded the the virus's uh, genetics and, and you can identify the mRNA that would code for the particular protein that you want to target with respect to the immune system. But most people haven't read about this um, in the past. And so folks are worried, right? They said the, fast, the, the fastest we've ever g- created a vaccine is four years. And now we're doing it in less than one. I'm a little bit skeptical. So as a lead researcher in, in generating this vaccine, what do you say to people who don't trust the process, who are worried? Wait until they realize that I'm not even impressed with this timeline because there's so many places where I feel like we lost time. (laughs) Mm. But uh, jokes aside, I completely understand from the outside looking in how it looks because this is also the first time that vaccine development has been in people's faces in this way. 
every single step of this process has been headline news. We've had task force and briefings and et cetera. I mean, I am on social media telling people about data as soon as they come out, et cetera. And so it's a little bit different than what anyone has ever witnessed before. And so I completely understand people's standpoint. What I can say is that none of the integrity or the responsibility around the data and this vaccine development process has been jeopardized because of its so-called warp speed or rapid development. What's happened is, number one, the ability to use tons of data and information that we had around mRNA vaccines and also coronavirus vaccines from our team and also others prior to this pandemic. So we had a lab notebooks full of preclinical, so to call it, testing with vaccine candidates, for example, for SARS-1 and also MERS that helped to drive this vaccine development forward. The other thing that happened is at many steps throughout this process, there were various entities, whether it be the companies or the government putting funding into manufacturing, et cetera, where people said the problem is so big that we have to do this what's considered to be at risk, which means maybe the money might be wasted, but it's worth it at the end if we get a product and if we get it that much quicker. And so lots of money was put into this development process at different various steps where otherwise a company would have had to wait for that data in order to feel comfortable with spending whatever odds of millions of dollars. And then the other thing that happened is that you're seeing what I consider to be very brilliant organization across the board, whether it be from our side at NIH or companies or at FDA, where there's this real like consorted effort for collaboration around these processes so that no one side is in the dark. And everyone's kind of working together. As data was coming out of the preclinical studies, we were informing the clinical trial and how they were operating, and then they were informing the FDA. And it was kind of this very cyclic collaboration, which otherwise might happen, but definitely doesn't happen to the extent of which it has happened here out of necessity. And so the main point is that there was a lot of information before even this virus came to be with other viruses in this viral family. And then the second part is just the fact that there's been this really organized and well-funded machine driving this process without any loopholes or without skipping any steps, but really out of the necessity of, of saving lives at the end of the day. Well, we're grateful that that research had been done. We're grateful for all the hands that went into it. And we're grateful for your hands and, and your mind uh, and the work that you've done to make this possible. Really, really, just really thankful that you took the time to share with us your insights and your perspective. Uh, again, that was Dr. Kizmigia Corbett. Uh, she is the scientific lead of the coronavirus vaccine team and research fellow at the NIH Vaccine Research Center. Dr. Corbett, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. Strain B117, the new strain discovered in the UK, which has been found to be up to 50% more transmissible, has made landfall in the US and has been found in at least three states. What tends to happen with strains that are more transmissible is that they spread faster than other strains in a process known as enriching. In that respect, it's highly probable that this strain will spread quickly in the US as well. 
though this strain is not more deadly, its ability to spread faster to more people means that it could account for more deaths overall. And though there's no evidence that the strain is less susceptible to immunity from the vaccine, it does increase the pressure to deploy the vaccine faster. The longer we allow this virus safe harbor, the more time it has to evolve and take on mutations that do allow it to evade our vaccines. On that front, both the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are intended to be used over two doses. However, American scientists and public health policymakers are debating using doses that had been earmarked for second doses to give more people a first dose. This follows the UK's decision to do so. On the one hand, immunity begins to develop as soon as 10 days after the first dose, and estimates of first dose immunity are as high as 80 to 90 percent. Though lower than the 94 to 95 percent immunity after the second dose, it's still quite high. Extending 80 to 90 percent immunity to twice as many people in the same amount of time may be more important from a herd immunity standpoint, particularly in the face of a potential spread of the B117 variant. At the same time, though, it's not clear if first dose immunity lasts as long, long enough to achieve the same immunity we'd expect from an on-time second dose after a delayed second dose. Also, and the key point, is that it's not how the vaccine was designed, nor how it was studied in trials. Here's Dr. Fauci. We do not know really with any certainty based on the trials that were done what the durability of a single dose would be. And if you give a single dose, there really is not a guarantee that you're going to get the second dose available to somebody at exactly the same time that they need. Another approach being considered is simply to cut doses down in size to extend them over more people. There's some evidence to suggest that the Moderna vaccine can be cut in half and still achieve the same immunity. Here's the director of Operation Warp Speed, Dr. Monsef Slawi. We are in discussion with Moderna and with the FDA. Of course, ultimately, it will be an FDA decision to accelerate injecting half the volume. Either way, it's clear we're not out of the woods yet. And though the horror show of 2020 may be behind us, this pandemic's got a long tail. And there's a lot more we'll need to do to finally bring it to an end. That's all for us today. Next week, we'll talk about misinformation and how we combat it. Oh, and don't forget, we've still got a few more of our Science Always Win sweatshirts, t-shirts, and hats available at the Crooked store. They're going quick, so make sure to grab one before they're gone. Crooked.com slash store. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Veronica Simonetti mixers and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra, Lyra Smith, and Allison Falzetta. The theme song is by Takea Suzawa and Alex Sugiera. Our executive producers are Sarah Geismer and me, Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed, your host. Thanks for listening. 